Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and my goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. This week, we're going to be covering four books of scripture, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And that seems like a lot to cover, but they're all relatively short books. Thematically, I'm going to lump the Timothys and Titus together and then do Philemon on its own. But as usual, let's go ahead and start with some background. So first and second Timothy. Timothy was a convert to the church from the city of Lystra, who Paul had met as a missionary and was very impressed with. Timothy's father was a Greek Gentile, but he had a Jewish mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And Timothy demonstrated great faith and a desire to spread the gospel. And so later, Paul has Timothy join him as a missionary companion, and they serve together for some time and become very close friends. Well, Paul gets word that there are some problems in the church back in Ephesus. There's some leaders and members that are starting to preach things that are not edifying and uplifting to the church. So Paul decides to send Timothy to see what's happening and to help correct the problem. At the time that Paul writes this letter, he has been imprisoned in Rome for a time, but he's been released and is most likely teaching in the area of Macedonia. So Paul writes 1 Timothy to check up on how things are going in Ephesus. 2 Timothy, on the other hand, was written from Rome while Paul is imprisoned for a second time. And it's apparent that at this point that Paul felt his death was imminent. His trial wasn't going well. In fact, the book of 2 Timothy is considered to be Paul's final letter that he writes in the entire New Testament that we know of. And so he's writing one more time to Timothy to see how things are going in Ephesus, which apparently is, is still having some problems. And then one more interesting detail that we know about Timothy. At the time of this letter, he's young. Just how young, we don't know. But Paul is going to give him some parting advice and counsel before he dies. Now, Titus was a Gentile that was converted by Paul himself. And on that teaching tour between his imprisonments in Rome, Paul traveled to Crete with Titus and placed him in charge of the church there to call some local leaders and to establish the church more. And the church in Crete had faced some significant problems as well. And there, too, we see the influence of corrupt and deceitful teachers leading the members astray with false doctrine. So we can look at both the Timothys and the book of Titus as Paul's counsel to local church leaders. Or an icebreaker, an object lesson that you could use. Just bring in a number of different items that you use to protect yourself during various activities. So I'm a rock climber, so I might bring in a harness. I'd bring in some oven mitts, safety glasses, work gloves, a bike helmet, a respirator, surgical gloves, and hockey or football pads. Whatever you have lying around at home, bring in a bunch of those kind of items and set them out on a table or out on the floor. And then you could just give them a number of situations and ask them which piece of protective equipment they would want to have while doing that activity. So if they were going to go prune some rose bushes, what would they want? Work gloves. What about playing a game of football? 
shoulder pads, a bike ride, the helmet, performing surgery, surgical gloves, rock climbing, a harness, cooking, oven mitts, and then working around dust or highly toxic chemicals, the respirator, using a weed trimmer, safety glasses. Just walk through your house and gather up as many protective items as you can and then just quiz them on their uses. And then you're going to want to make your point. There are certain activities and things that we do that present us with hazards and dangers. We as humans can usually recognize risky or perilous conditions. So what do we do? We protect ourselves. There are things available that can help keep us safe from those inherent dangers. The wise will take every necessary precaution to keep themselves protected from harm and injury. And then maybe you could tell a story where you or someone you know failed to take the necessary precautions to protect themselves in a certain situation. I remember being lazy one time and not wanting to go and find my safety glasses before using my weed trimmer. Well, a couple of minutes into the job, the trimmer kicked a rock up into my face and left a large gash just under my eye. That kind of freaked me out. I thought to myself, what if, what if that rock had just hit me a few centimeters higher? I could have lost an eye. So from then on, I've decided that I will always wear eye protection when I trim the yard. Or I might tell a story of people that I know of who decided to go climbing without a rope or a harness and the disastrous results that came from that decision. If we wish to avoid pain and injury, then we've got to take the necessary precautions to protect ourselves from possible perils and dangers. Well, if we're smart enough to wear oven mitts while cooking and bike helmets while bike riding and safety glasses while trimming, then why do we sometimes ignore the spiritual hazards and dangers that the prophets have warned us about in the same kind of way. Our spirits are also susceptible to injury and hurt. Spiritual death is a real thing, and the prophets have consistently warned us of moral dangers, like hatred, pride, disobedience, spiritually damaging media, and dishonesty. Do we react in the same way to them as we do the physical dangers? Do we strive to protect our spirits in the same way that we do our bodies? Well, Paul's going to use a very interesting word to describe the latter days in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And what is it? The answer? Perilous. Perilous times shall come. We live in dangerous times. And what hazards make our times so dangerous? Paul's going to give us a huge list of the dangers of the last days. And what do you think he's going to warn us about? Is he going to say terrorism, health epidemics, war, hurricanes, tsunamis, economic hardships, political turmoil, zombie apocalypses, high cancer rates, car and airline accidents, global warming? Are those the kinds of things that make our world so dangerous in the last days? Well, let's see what he says. Read verses 2 through 5. What 
dangers is Paul most concerned about? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, which means sexual immorality, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, which means not having any self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, which means rash, reckless, high-minded, means to be conceited, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. It's quite the uh, the gallery of sin there, isn't it? What makes the last days so perilous? Not medical epidemics, but moral epidemics. Not politics, but pride. Not disasters, but disobedience. Not global warming, but global wickedness. Not natural disasters, spiritual disasters. We ought to be much more worried about the spiritual calamities of the latter days over the physical ones. I mean, honestly, I look at these things with an eternal perspective. If I die in a terrorist attack or a plane crash or a hurricane, I just die, right? You know, I get my transfer to the spirit world a little earlier than I would prefer. But if one of these spiritual disasters get to me, and I die spiritually. I lose my faith, uh, my commitment to righteous living, my protection from the adversary. Well, that could very well affect my eternal prospects. It's a much bigger deal. Now remember that First and Second Timothy and Titus are written to church leaders who are striving to lead their flocks to righteous action and increased faith amid the influence of false teachers and worldly pressure. So two messages we're going to focus on here, the dangers and the safeguards. What hazards are we going to face and what kinds of things are going to help to protect us from those hazards? So let's begin with the dangers. We've already discovered a huge list of them in verses two through five, but there's a lot more in these books. So I'm going to give you the verses and you pull out the words and phrases that answer that question and I'll stick them up on the screen. So you got to spot the dangers. What are some of the perilous things that will make it difficult for us to stay spiritually safe in the last days? And a few ways that you could approach this as a teacher. If I had a large whiteboard or chalkboard, I'd divide it up into 18 squares. So you draw five evenly spaced horizontal lines and two evenly spaced vertical lines. Then write the provided references in each of the boxes. This is quite a large list, so it would take a really long time to go through and discover each of these together as a class. But you could give the class a challenge to try and fill it in as quickly as possible with the dangers that are found in those verses, all working together at the same time. If they can fill it in in four minutes or less, or whatever number you determine is right for your class, then there could be some kind of a class reward, uh, a funny video to watch, a, a small treat getting let out a few minutes early, something along those lines. Or you could divide them into teams and see which team can fill out the same chart 
on a handout first. I'll make that available. Or if you're really strapped for time, you could just run through them together and show them as a teacher, like I'm going to do with you right now. But then encourage them to take time and mark them as you go in a selected color in their scriptures. And, and I tell you, this is going to be some of the most fun language that you're going to get out of Paul in the New Testament. It's very descriptive and, and very good. So here we go. What are the dangers? We'll start in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Fables. Now, when we hear the word fables, we think of cute little stories with talking animals. But that's not what Paul means. Here, it means an account or a story that's based on the falsification of facts. Uh, endless genealogies. What does he mean by that? Well, the Jews felt they were the chosen ones, and they felt the need to prove it through their family trees. It gave them a false sense of security, that they were saved or better than others just because of who their ancestors were. It would be like somebody in the church today feeling that they had a spiritual leg up on other people because their great-great-grandfather was a pioneer. And then also in that verse, things which minister questions. Chapter 1, verse 6, vain janglings. So good. And these vain janglings have caused some members to swerve or turn aside from their faith. Chapter 4, verse 1, seducing spirits, doctrines of devils. Here, it will also cause many to depart from the faith. I find the word seducing interesting. One meaning of the word seduce is to entice somebody into sexual activity. There are things out there that will seduce us away from the faith. Chapter 4, verse 7. Profane and old wives' fables. Synonyms for the word profane include irreverent, obscene, sacrilegious, vulgar, and offensive. Chapter 6, verse 4. Proud, knowing nothing, doting about questions and strifes of words, envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. And the footnote for that says wicked suspicions. Thinking that everybody has an ulterior motive. Uh, nobody has good intentions. And 6.5, perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds, destitute of truth. Now let's go to 2 Timothy, where the theme continues. Chapter 2, verse 4. He talks about people that entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. It means getting all wrapped up in worldly concerns and desires. 2.14. Striving about words to no profit, subverting of hearers. 2.16. Profane and vain babblings. And what do those things do? They increase to more ungodliness. 2.18, erred concerning the truth, overthrow faith. 2.23, foolish and unlearned questions that gender strifes. Chapter 3, verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That makes me think of those who have great intellectual prowess, who are astute academics or scholars and, and know so much, and yet haven't figured out the basics of moral living, the plan of salvation, the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 3, lusts heap to themselves 
teachers, having itching ears. And I think that last phrase means that they turn to sources that tell them just what they want to hear. I have this itch in my ear, and I'm going to go to someone who will scratch that itch. Ah, yeah, right there. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. You've confirmed my bias. You've confirmed what I already believe. You've scratched my itch. Chapter 4, verse 4, turned unto fables. And now Titus, same idea. Chapter 1, verse 9, gainsayers. A gainsayer is somebody who opposes, always seeking to contradict, no matter what it is. Verse 10, unruly, vain talkers, deceivers. Chapter 1, verse 14, fables, commandments of men that turn from the truth. And and other terms for the commandments of men, the rules of society, trends, fads, popular opinions. In chapter 3, verse 9, foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. All right. I know that was a lot, but I wanted you to really see this. We've got a pretty good list here of the kinds of things that are not going to help us through our perilous times that we live in. And I hope that you've noticed a theme running throughout that list or that chart. Just look at it closely. I don't know if you'll have the same epiphany that I did, but does that look like a good description of anything in our world today? Where do we find vain janglings, babblings, the profane or obscene things that gender strife, seducing spirits, the perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds, foolish things, things that entangle us in the affairs of this life and the popular opinions of the day, things that overthrow faith and minister questions. Are you having the same impression that I am? It's the internet, right? It's social media. Television, movies, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, fake news, and all the anti-faith, anti-family, anti-virtue kind of material that fills our screens. The media is filled with things that incite anger, contention, gainsaying, and questioning. Overflowing with the foolish, the seductive, the deceitful. Isn't it fascinating that one of the most accurate descriptions of our modern technological age was written almost 2,000 years ago? I mean, Paul just nails it here, doesn't he? If we wish to survive the perilous poisons of the latter days, then it's essential that we protect ourselves from the vain janglings, babblings, and seducing spirits of our age. Because access to much of that kind of material is right in the palms of our hands and in our backpacks and on our desktops. The screens of Sodom are all around us. And now I'm not saying that everything on the internet or social media or television is all bad. I mean, for heaven's sakes, this video that you're watching right now is on the internet. But I'm willing to bet you that 90% of what's out there on our screens fits Paul's description. Now, consider... How much time do I spend in that world? How much time am I exposed to this sort of contamination? 
Am I opening myself up to spiritual harm or injury? What should we do with those kinds of things instead? Maybe just three quick verses for an answer. 1 Timothy 6.5 Withdraw thyself. 2 Timothy 2.23 Turn away. 2 Timothy 3.5 Avoid. So now, how do we do that? Here's the other side of the question. If I need to withdraw and avoid and turn away from such things, what am I going to turn to? Do I have any spiritual safety goggles or, or, or gloves available to me? Yes, uh, Paul is going to give us some great advice for this internet and social media hungry world. And let me give you uh, another list of words or phrases that describe what will help us during the perilous times. And I probably wouldn't do the same kind of an activity as I did with the other list. Uh, if I had my class work together to find all the words, that I might just lead them through these words as a teacher. So it would probably take a lot of time. Or if you feel like you have the time, you could do another similar search activity. But let's go through these together. I'm just going to walk you through them. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, no other doctrine. 1, 4, godly edifying. 1, 5, charity, pure heart, good conscience, faith unfeigned. So, question to ask ourselves, are the things I'm letting into my life edifying me? The influences I allow, are they leading me to charity and unpretended faith? And then here's my favorite phrase in the whole lesson. Where are we going to go to stay grounded, to stay protected? It's going to come up a lot of times in these, in these books, in these chapters. Chapter 1, verse 10. Sound doctrine. We need to fill our lives with sound doctrine. Synonyms for sound? Solid, well-founded, reasonable, dependable, fur. Chapter 4, verse 6. Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. 4.13. Reading, exhortation, doctrine. 4.15. Meditate on these things. Give thyself holy to them. 4.16. Take heed unto the doctrine. 6.3. Wholesome words, words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine which is according to godliness. 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the form of sound words which you've heard of me, the words of the prophets, given in faith and love. So, did you listen to General Conference? Sometimes my students complain about the length of General Conference. And to that I say, well, are we able to sit and binge watch an entire season of a Netflix show, but we can't give the prophets a few hours on one weekend twice a year? We can play video games for hours straight, but we can't sit through a single session. Which source are we turning to? Chapter 114. Keep that good thing which was committed unto thee by the Holy Ghost. So that's another source we can turn to, the Holy Ghost. And are we sensitive to its promptings? Do we listen for the still small voice? And then 3.10. Fully known the doctrine. 
We're going to come back to chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. That's, that's where I'd like to end. But chapter 4, verse 2, exhort with long suffering and doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 3, they will not endure sound doctrine. Then we go to Titus, chapter 1, verse 9, sound doctrine. One thirteen, sound in the faith. Two one, sound doctrine. Two seven, doctrine. Two eight, sound speech. And two ten, adorn the doctrine. And then we're going to do my favorite one. What is one of the greatest sources of sound doctrine that we have? One of the greatest pieces of protective gear that we can carry with us. What is it? But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, a quick interjection here. I know with these activities that that is a lot of verses. Those are two giant lists. And so a caution, you don't want to get too wrapped up in the lists and, and take too long going through each one. So as a teacher, Consider the time frame that you have and the way that you want to approach them, and you might pare those lists down. You don't have to lead your students through every single one. I just wanted to give you the complete picture, but you could just pick out some of the highlights and still make the same point. But back to what we're talking about here. What's one of our greatest sources of protection? The Holy Scriptures given by inspiration of God. And then just look at all the blessings that they bring us. They provide us with wisdom. They lead us to salvation. They increase our faith, correct our errors, instruct us on how to be more righteous. They help us to be better, more perfect. They perfect us little by little as they teach us how to fill our lives with good works. And I might stop right there and ask my students if they've ever had an experience with the scriptures where they received one of those blessings. Do they have a favorite scripture that has given them wisdom, taught them something, inspired them? Is there a chapter that clarified some doctrine in their minds? Has a certain scripture story reproved or corrected them, helped them to repent, to realize that they needed to change? Or is there a character that has instructed them how to live a better life, that's made them more like Christ, more perfect? Well, I don't think I have to convince you of how much I love the scriptures. I know that whenever I feel overwhelmed by the world, when I feel lost or anxious or discouraged, if I open the scriptures, they always lift me out of it. I've been teaching them for many years now. And even though they're ancient, they've never gotten old to me. They've been one of the greatest sources of spiritual safety that I know of. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes, sometimes the vain janglings and the old wives' fables, the things which minister questions out there, have troubled me before. 
There have been times when it seems like the darkness of the world and doubt, the doubt that it engenders, have filled my soul with discouragement. And when those times come, brothers and sisters, all I have to do is open my scriptures, read some of my favorite passages or chapters. Moses 1, Luke 15, Doctrine and Covenants 121, the book of Philippians, Alma 32. Or connect with certain characters, Joseph of Egypt, Captain Moroni, Joseph Smith, Jesus Christ himself. When I do that, all of that light and assurance and hope comes flooding back into my soul. The scriptures have the power to restore our faith, our trust, our optimism. They provide us with safety for the soul. So our truth here, if I rely on sources of sound doctrine, the Spirit, the prophets, the Holy Scriptures, then I will be protected from the perils of the last days. To liken the Scriptures, take a moment for some self-reflection. Think about this past week. How much time did you spend here in this list? in the vain janglings and the babblings of the world. And then, how much time did you spend here, in the sources of sound doctrine? And then, just ask ourselves, do I need to make an adjustment? And will I make an adjustment? We all know the famous line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And, and that's a good description of the last days, isn't it? It's true. There is a lot of spiritual peril all around us. But just think, we have more opportunities to protect ourselves than any previous dispensation or time. We have more protective gear available to us than any disciple of Christ has ever in the past. We have a combination of all former scripture right at our fingertips. Five entire standard works to help us out. We've got 15 prophets providing us with modern scripture. We've got the help of the Holy Ghost. We've got access to so much sound doctrine that our foundations can stand strong against any assault if we rely on those things. So let's listen carefully to the sound of all that sound doctrine. If we wish to endure these perilous times, then we've got to take our spiritual self-protection seriously. So let's put on our gloves, our helmets, our safety glasses, and stay safe. That's the message that I would most want to get across to my students this week. I really think that's the main overarching theme and lesson from these books. But the scriptures, like we've just been talking about, are amazing and they are full of so much good stuff. And there are some other really important smaller messages within these books that I'd like to briefly cover with you. And then rather than giving you the full treatment on these verses, maybe just a quick thought or activity for each one that can at least provide you with a bit of insight should you choose to cover these areas instead. So here we go. Uh, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I think that the Timothys provide us with a good opportunity to discuss what we do 
when we encounter difficult passages to understand in the scriptures. Some of you have probably already run into some parts of the epistles that may be a bit troubling to you. Especially if you're a teacher, you might feel a little anxiety over what you might say if somebody asks you about some of these verses. Paul says some challenging things in the epistles, particularly dealing with women's issues, same gender attraction, and slavery. For example, what do you do with something like these verses here? 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. I can see some people struggling with that. Like, what, that's in the scriptures? How on earth do we explain that? And, and there are other passages in Paul's writings that are kind of like that. A little baffling. Well, here are some things to consider when you encounter that kind of thing. Five suggestions for dealing with difficult passages of scripture. So, one, it may not be translated correctly might just be a mistake. The eighth article of faith tells us that we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Perhaps the passages we're reading are mistranslations. They may not be correct. Two, there may be an alternate translation of certain words. Perhaps the words chosen by the King James translators are not the best or most accurate translations of those words. The meanings of words can change over time. There are other possible translations that can be derived from the original Greek manuscripts that we have. And you can find some of these right in your footnotes. Instead of silence, look at the footnote for 12c. We could substitute silence with quietness or tranquility. Perhaps he's just saying that women should be reverent. Usurp authority could also be translated as exercise dominion be autocratic or domineer. So perhaps he just means that women should not try to usurp the role of presiding priesthood holders or get into a power struggle with them. Kind of puts the passage in a bit of a different light. It can help. However, you still might struggle with it. It's okay. So a third suggestion. Perhaps we're just misinterpreting the intent of the writer. I mean, we don't have Paul here to explain exactly what he means. There may be some key contextual factors that we just don't have. It says in those verses that women shouldn't teach. Well, I don't know about that one, but women in Paul's day were certainly teaching the gospel and playing a pivotal role in the early church. He's constantly praising them by name, mentioning the good things that they're doing. Women like Tabitha, Rhoda, Lydia, Priscilla, Phoebe, Mary, Persis, and Claudia. Women were definitely major players in the early church. And then in the books of Timothy themselves, just jump over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, 
which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that in thee also. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, we know that Timothy had been taught from the scriptures from a child. Who was doing that teaching? Where did Timothy get the foundation of his faith and a love for the scriptures? His grandmother and his mother. So, you Loises and Eunices out there, keep teaching your Timothys. God needs faithful women to teach the gospel just as much as he needs faithful men. Then look in Titus 2, 3-4, where Paul gives advice to the aged women. Look what he says. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Well, there you go. Paul counseling women to teach. So obviously, we have to consider what we read in 1 Timothy in light of everything that Paul said about the subject, not just one particular instance. The antis love to do that kind of thing. They like to dig up one single statement said by a church leader or prophet and condemn the whole church or the gospel by that one phrase, that one sentence, that one quote. If we really want to know what a prophet thought about something, we should consider everything they said about it. If we really want to know what the church believes about a certain thing, then we should consider all statements on it, not just pull out one single statement. And then what about those lines about Adam and Eve? Now you could interpret verse 13 as saying that Adam had authority or superiority over Eve. Well, I don't see it that way. I see it as a description of the order of creation and that Adam had a responsibility for Eve. You could interpret verse 14 as a condemnation of Eve. I don't see it that way. I think all verse 14 means is that they took the fruit for different reasons. Eve herself says that she was beguiled. Well, there's no condemnation there. We've all been deceived by the adversary. We've all partaken of forbidden fruit at times. She was just explaining what happened. And then Adam partook of the fruit to stay with Eve and to fulfill the Lord's commandment to stay together. Then verse 15 has a key Joseph Smith translation change. It should read, Notwithstanding, they shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So having and raising children can be a saving act for faithful husbands and wives. I honestly don't believe that Paul felt that women were to be silent and listen to the men as a punishment for what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Doesn't coincide with all we know about that situation. Just consider the second article of faith. We believe that men shall be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. We could also say, we believe that women shall be punished for their own sins and not for Eve's transgression. I don't even think that Eve was punished for her transgression. I think what followed was the natural consequences of mortality. Things that God intended all along for all of us to experience. Work, childbearing, sorrow, good and evil. That was mortality, not punishment. And if you want to learn more about all of that, you can check out the first half of Moses chapter 5. Now, I'm not saying that my interpretation 
that I'm giving right here is the correct interpretation, but it's a possibility. Keep in mind that there are different ways of understanding certain verses in the scriptures. All right, suggestion number four, we follow a living prophet. We don't need to get too concerned about things like this in the scriptures because we have living prophets that teach us the proper application of gospel principles in our day. Do the living prophets teach that application? No. When and teach, they speak, they pray, they lead, they serve missions, they make decisions in the church. So don't let these Bible verses bother you too much. If the living prophet isn't applying them in that way, then we don't need to either. And then a fifth suggestion, don't judge their age and culture by our age and culture. Prophets are also a product of their time. So let's not judge. It's, it's not fair. It's impossible to not be affected and influenced in some way by the culture that surrounds you. We have to appreciate and consider the world that Paul is teaching in. Church needs to grow. He just can't take on every incorrect aspect of the Greek and Roman world all at once. I mean, in reality, you have to pick your battles. I mean, Paul's facing opposition from the Greeks, who think the idea of resurrection is silly. He's facing opposition from the Jewish Christians, who, who just can't let the circumcision things go. And, and remember that most of the epistles that we studied so far are filled with Paul dealing with problems. He's got a lot of things on his plate. He just can't afford to take on the patriarchal society and the institution of slavery at the same time. If he had, it's highly doubtful that the church would have gotten even to where it did get back then. God's got to be pragmatic with the way he guides his church. Cultures are different, and church policies have to change and adapt over time, depending on the world around it. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that the Lord compromises on doctrines or fundamental principles. But policy? That's a little different. Look at what's happening in the church today. President Nelson is changing a lot of policies to adapt to the world we live in now. And on top of that, I think we have to assume that Paul is also the product of his own time. We can't expect perfection from him according to our standards. This can apply to other ages, too. We may look at some of the things that Joseph Smith or Brigham Young said and did in their day and be really bothered by it. But is it fair to expect them to be immune to the influence of their own age? I mean, we wouldn't want them to judge us by their age, would we? What if one of them came to our day and saw the way our women dress compared to how they dressed back then? If a pioneer woman came and saw some of the Relief Society sisters wearing shorts or yoga pants, they'd be shocked. If they went to the beach and saw a faithful member woman wearing what we would consider to be a very modest one-piece bathing suit, I think they would be horrified. Well, let's not be guilty of doing the same kind of thing to them. Let's not assume that everything about our culture and age is right and everything about theirs is wrong. And I think that if we can keep these ideas in mind, these safeguards, we'll be able to understand or look past some of the few but more troubling passages in Paul's writings. Perhaps even the scriptures in general and church history as well. We want to keep an open 
and understanding mind. How about some of the more inspiring passages from these books? You may want to direct your students' attention to 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 through 16. A quick icebreaker that I might do with this passage involves magnets. Now, this may not work for you depending on your teaching environment, but in my classroom, I have a podium that has a little storage area under it. And what I do is secretly place a large block of magnets inside. And I'll put a link in the video description below to where you can get some magnets like these. And then you may have to adjust how you do this based on how you teach, where you teach, and what you have. But then for fun, I pull out a paperclip and I tell my students that I have the power to move the paperclip with my mind. And I hold it in my palm and pretend like I'm trying to move it with my thoughts. And as I'm doing this, I slowly bring my hand towards the place on my podium where I know that the magnet is right underneath it. And incredibly, the paperclip begins to move the closer you get to the magnet. And at first, the students are shocked, surprised at what's happening as they see the paperclip starting to move seemingly on its own. But eventually, they figure it out. Right? I've done this many times and they always figure it out. You can ask if anybody knows how you're able to do this. And they'll shout out, you've got a magnet. After which I pull out the magnet and show everybody how it moves and influences the paperclip. And see, that's because the magnet emits an invisible yet powerful force that can impact things around it. Well, we can be like that magnet. We too have a power or an influence that can radiate invisibly around us and have a profound effect on the world around us. That power is the power of our example. The force of what we do, what we say, and who we are emanates from us and influences other people, whether for good or evil. So what kind of force emanates from you? Paul gave some great advice to his younger counterpart, Timothy, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. And remember that Timothy is a young man, so this passage is especially great for young people. As you read it, look for what Paul specifically directs Timothy to do to help him to be a better example. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, says the elders. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And so much to unpack there. But just give your students some time to share what they see. Quick thoughts? Don't underestimate the power that you can have for good, even in your youth. Let no man despise thy youth. Young people can radiate an incredible power, like the magnet. They can draw others to Christ by example. 
No wonder we send 18 to 21 year olds out into the world to be missionaries. Just look at all the ways that we can increase our influence. We are to be examples in word, the way we speak, in conversation, which means the way we act, in charity, through service and Christ-like behavior, in spirit, in faith, in purity, our connection to the Holy Ghost and our testimony and our commitment to living as purely as possible can have an effect on people. From verse 13, our connection with the scriptures and our understanding of doctrine can be powerful. From verse 14, magnifying our unique spiritual gifts can make a difference. And if we do these kinds of things, we will not only profit ourselves and save ourselves, but help to bring salvation to all those that hear and see us. You may want to invite your students to share some examples of people in their lives who have been a good example to them. Have them share the impact that those people have had on their lives. And remember, don't underestimate the power that you have for good. Be a magnet for Christ. Draw others to Him by being an example of the believers. Now, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 through Remember that I told you that 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. It's apparent to him at this point that his life is ending. His trial in Rome isn't going well, and he can sense that he's coming to the end of his life. How sad. I really hope that you've come to love Paul as much as I do over these past few months. He's such an amazing example to me. He's high on my list of people that I want to meet in the next life. Ever the optimist, Listen to how he felt about facing his own imminent death. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Oh, isn't that good? Don't you just love his confidence and his certainty? You might remember the lesson that we had way back in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul compared his path of discipleship to two Olympic sports, running and wrestling. He said, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertain. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Can you see that same imagery there? So in Second Timothy, we get to see Paul coming to the end of his race. The finish line of the marathon is right in front of him. The wrestling match is just about to end. And now he's looking back at his race and and contemplating his match. And he's satisfied. He knows he's done a good job. So the activity I might do with my students here is actually just, just a really great thing to do in general. So it's a Stephen Covey idea, even. I wonder if he got this idea from Paul in his incredibly popular Seven Habits book. 
But the habit is begin with the end in mind. Popular self-help question these days is, what would you do if you knew that today was your last day on earth? And that question's supposed to, to help you better evaluate your priorities, which isn't a bad question and, and it can offer you some insight. But an even better question or mental exercise is to contemplate your own funeral. What would you want the people you know to say about you? What kind of a person you were? What would you want your spouse to say about you? Your children? Your co-workers? And then here, what would you want Christ to say about you as one of his disciples? That's a, that's a much better question to ask than what would you do if today was your last day? So I'd invite my students to take a quiet, pondering moment and ask themselves at least that last question. What would you want Christ to say about you at your funeral? About how you lived your religious life? I hope to be able to say at the end of my life what Paul says here. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. A desire to be able to say that at the end of my life helps to provide me with the strength that I need to continue now. It can give me the motivation to keep running, even though I'm tired. It can give me the strength I need to keep fighting, even though I'm battered by trial and temptation. And the promise is assured. If I can but endure to the end, an incorruptible crown of righteousness awaits all of us in the end. All right, now on to the shortest of all the books in the New Testament, the book of Philemon. And even though it's short, I think it's got a really powerful message. Sometimes I find that it's a good idea to allow my students to learn from a book of scripture on their own before we talk about it. And since Philemon is such a short book, I feel that's a good place to do this kind of an activity. So I've put together a guided study worksheet that, that they can work on either on their own or with a partner. And I'll make this available for download. But here's what it looks like. And all of the answers can be found in the book of Philemon itself or in the Bible dictionary under the heading Pauline Epistles with the subheading Epistle to Philemon. It's on page 746 at the back of your church edition of the Bible. And now I'll lead you through the answers. Who was Onesimus? The answer... B, a former slave belonging to Philemon who had robbed him and run away. 2. What had happened to Onesimus while away from Philemon's household? Answer. A. He had met Paul and had been converted to the gospel. Number 3. What counsel did Paul give to Onesimus? The answer. D. To return to his master and ask for forgiveness. 4. What counsel did Paul give to Philemon? And mark all that apply. The answer? All four, right? A, B, C, and D. To acknowledge that all good things come from Christ. To receive Onesimus back as not only a servant, but a brother. To receive Onesimus as if he were Paul himself and to prepare a room for him in case he got out of prison and could visit. Next question there. Find all the words suggesting brotherhood 
in the verses below and fill in the blanks. So verse 1, Timothy, our brother. Also in verse 1, Philemon, our dearly beloved. And one more in that verse, and fellow laborer. Verse 2, Archippus, our fellow soldier. Verse 7, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Verse 10, I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus. Verse 16, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved. Verse 17, if thou count me therefore a partner. Verse 20, yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. 23, there salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. Verse 24, Lucas, my fellow laborers. So there's there's a, a theme in that book, right? You can see that brotherhood and love and acceptance and working together comes up over and over and over again in this tiny little book. And then how do you interpret verses 8 through 9? I really love these verses. They say, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now they might struggle with that, but here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, you know, Philemon, I could ask you as an apostle of God to receive Onesimus back as a brother. I could be bold in Christ to use my authority to tell you what to do. But Paul's not going to approach it that way. He's kind of saying that he's not going to pull the apostle card here. Yet, for love's sake, I'm just going to ask you, not as an apostle, but Paul the old man, Paul your friend, will you do this for me? It's kind of a cool lesson in leadership. He's not going to do things by authority but he tries to lead by persuasion, which is the first principle of righteousness mentioned in Doctrine and Covenants 121. The first principle of righteousness of righteous priesthood authority, persuasion. Well, what was Paul willing to do for Onesimus according to verses 18 through 19? Those verses say, If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. So he's basically saying, whatever Onesimus owes you, put that on my account. I'll pay for it. So so here's Paul willing to make a great self-sacrifice for a fellow brother. So my final question on there, what message does the book of Philemon teach you? That's a completely open-ended question, of course. I believe that there are numerable lessons that we could get from this little book. It teaches us something about forgiveness, brotherhood, conversion, sacrifice to do the right thing, honesty, giving up personal gain to help others. So many lessons that we could learn from this little book. But for me, the giant lesson of this tiny book lies in the title itself. This is a different kind of letter than all of the others. How is it different? It's written to a single member of the church. It's not written to an entire congregation 
or even a church leader like, like all of the others. It's just a straightforward letter written to one member of the church on behalf of another. It's an example of a simple act of kindness in behalf of a single lost soul. It shows us that the apostles could be personal, not only concerned with cities and churches and leaders, but individuals. We worship a one-by-one God. God cares about people, and his apostles and prophets care about individual people. Even amidst all the responsibilities and administrative duties that a leader of the church has, it all comes down to the one. The church was created to save individuals, individual souls. There have been numerous stories told in General Conference where you see the brethren interacting with and blessing individual people. And I know I've told you this story before, but I've had personal experience with this principle. When my mother was dying of cancer, President Nelson, who was not the president at the time, but but an apostle, made the effort in his busy schedule to visit our house and to give my mom a blessing. And he didn't have to do that. It's not possible for the apostles to attend to every personalized situation and trial in the church. But inasmuch as they can, I believe they all find time to interact with members on an individual basis. President Nelson didn't use his priesthood power to heal my mom but he gave her a beautiful blessing and and promised her great joy. After the blessing, he took my mom's hands in his and he looked into her eyes and they and all of us shed tears together. And it was a personal testament to me of the prophets and God's love for individuals. To me, that's the message of the book of Philemon. God knows you. God loves you. And you are of infinite worth as an individual in Christ's church. And that will conclude our lesson for this week. I know that was a lot. Uh, There's a lot in those four little books, isn't there? Well, if you did enjoy what you heard or, or you felt like it helped you in some way, I'd encourage you to share it with somebody else that you feel it could help. If you haven't subscribed, do that. Uh, Like the video, leave a comment. All of those things will help to push uh, the channel out to more and more people. Teachers, if you're interested in any of the resources that I create for teachers, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Now, thank you so much for your time. I hope you'll join me again next week. Thanks for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.